It goes without saying that I know we have a lot of fellas that are here. That when it comes to television programming, you are unaware that there are other television channels besides ESPN. That's my favorite. But do you like the History Channel? No. <laughs> House divided right there. I love it. History Channel is awesome. Because you, you feel like you get to know people that have died long ago. You feel like you get to understand what are the things that made them who they were. You know, the psychology of Hitler's childhood and what made him who he was. Or the brilliance of Albert Einstein. You know, if we could just kind of learn what his parents did, you know, maybe that would help, you know, math tests, you know, for our kids. You know, maybe there's a secret that's there. And, you know, it's just kind of fun, kind of voyeuristically to kind of live a day in the life of somebody that you admire, somebody who's a famous personality. And when we come to Matthew chapter 9, we see a day in the life of Jesus. You talk about walking in his shoes, you get the opportunity, so to speak, to walk in his sandals. And so the passage that we're looking at today, uh, beginning in Matthew 9, verse 18, follows very closely upon the thing that we talked about last week. Jesus was in the process of calling all kinds of people to himself that got him in trouble. Because the religious leaders just didn't approve of the kind of people Jesus was associating with. And so he had called Levi, Matthew, to be his disciple. And Matthew so got what Jesus was trying to do in calling despised people like himself, that the very first thing Matthew did was he threw a party for other tax collectors and sinners like himself. It's a wonderful outreach. Uh, it was a wonderful party, but it was not without controversy. One of the things that I love about the Gospels is there are, um, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different perspectives. John is the most different. John kind of writes from a, a God perspective down. Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of write from an earthly perspective up. And you go, all right, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they sound so much alike. Why, Why have it in triplicate? If you've, ever, if you've ever had the unfortunate um, incident of being involved in an automobile accident, you are quite aware that the police are not just going to ask for your side of the story. It's not that they don't believe you. It's uh, not that they find you untrustworthy, but they're going to ask the other person that's involved. And if, if there happen to be bystanders, they're going to come in, and you get a much fuller picture from everyone's perspectives than, than you do from any one particular person. And so in Matthew's Gospel... He has orchestrated the way some of these things are written to um, kind of thematically group some things. And in his gospel, he puts all of these healing stories together in Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9. And so as we conclude, really, with uh, the, the vast majority of chapter 9 today, we see this tremendous season of healing coming to a close. Jesus will do other miracles. There will be other things that he does. But the grouping of nine miracles that happen, boom, 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 in chapter 8 and chapter 9 are not repeated again in Matthew's gospel. And so today we'll see there's three episodes of healing, but there are four people who are blessed because of it. So picking up where we left off, while at Matthew's party, Jesus is confronted. He's confronted first by the Pharisees who want to rebuke him for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And he is confronted by John's disciples who are fasting and asking why he is feasting. In the middle of the party, there's another interruption. Pharisees come. John the Baptist's disciples come. And now there's another interruption. I talked about this in the first service. I don't know what, what every single person does for a living. 
that if you happen to be involved in customer service, does it seem like when you're actually trying to get your task done that the phone just keeps ringing like crazy? And, and when you're really focused on a task, there's a deadline, you've got to get it done. The last thing you want is another blasted phone call. And so even though you're a customer service representative, there may not be a lot of customer service in the next phone call. Because it's a interruption. I had a wise man mentor me through a book. I never met him. He died in 1950. But he was an Australian missionary who said that when we look at time management from Jesus' perspective, there's no such thing as interruptions. They are divine appointments. So the next time you're trying to get something done, and it's a inter- I mean, divine appointment, Perhaps it's better for you to say, hey, God knows that I'm busy, but he also sent you my way. So what do we need to talk about? You've honored them by letting them know what's happening. You've honored God by saying he's in charge, but you've not made a person feel like an imposition. God has sent them to you. And that's how Jesus handled things. Jesus didn't see these things as interruptions. He saw them as divine appointments. And so listen, if God wants to interrupt Jesus' dinner party where he's the guest of honor, go right ahead. Pharisees, I'll talk to you. John the Baptist, your disciple can take a number. And oh yeah, here comes another fellow. Listen to what it says in verse 18a. As Jesus was at the party uh, telling John's disciples these things, suddenly one of the synagogue leaders came and knelt down before him. We know that there's increasing conflict. The religious leaders don't like Jesus. And in this episode, you have this man who's described as a synagogue leader. One of the things that's cool, if you pay attention to stuff in the Holy Lands, they have excavated the synagogue uh, in um, Capernaum, and there's a house, there's a parsonage kind of attached to it. And that's where the synagogue official lived. He was a layperson, he was not a priest, he was not a rabbi. He was kind of what we would call an usher. He, he helped to take care of the building and to perform some of the tasks, but he was a layperson. They think, the guy in this story, that they have walked through his house. They've excavated it. That's just cool to go back 2,000 years and to find the actual place where this story takes place. <clears throat> and it's interesting because Mark and Luke record that this man's name is Jairus. Matthew doesn't tell us his name, but he says how he came, the manner in which he came. Matthew is the only one to specifically call out that when he came, he knelt. Which for Matthew is always a word for worship. When Matthew says kneel, when your knee touches the ground, that's a symbol for worship. And what we're going to see is he's not just coming to worship, he comes to make a request. <clears throat> and in this episode, we'll see that Jesus demonstrates his power over mankind's most chronic issues, death and long-term debilitation. Now, in our second service, we have predominantly a younger crowd. And I don't know that you can appreciate long-term disability. It's a terrible thing. Everything that can be done has been been done for you. And now, your responsibility is to suffer in silence. Death is a great robber. 
It makes us bereft of precious relationships. And Jesus demonstrates his power over both of these terrible things. And so this man comes, Jairus comes, and he kneels before Jesus, and he makes him aware of a terrible situation. Listen to the second half of verse 18. This man came and he knelt down before him and he said, My daughter is dead. My daughter is dead. Who invited this guy to the party? You can hear the casual conversation, the clinking of glasses, and maybe the the, the chink, chink, chink of utensils hitting the plates. And people are enjoying their party with Jesus, the guest of honor, and out of the corner of their eye, they see this man come and kneel. And in the midst of their joyous occasion of revelry, perhaps with tears still wet in his eyes, the warmth of her, her body still upon his touch, but fading fast, he comes and says that his daughter is dead. Party's over. Hush comes upon the crowd. Can you imagine leaving your wife to deal with this and you go, I have an errand to run. I have a person to see. And what I love about this is that he moves very quickly from reporting the fact she is dead to faith. She is dead, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jairus had a dead, comma, but faith. For most of us, it's dead, period. And he says, Jesus, I have never seen you raise a person from the dead. But I I believe that your power is so limitless that I can say dead, but. That's extraordinary. Because outside of, you know, a crippled guy, a blind guy, on the scale of disaster and healing, he's just gone to a 10. Maybe all the other stuff was like a 2 or 3 for Jesus. Is Jesus, all, you, though you've always camped out at the 2 or 3 range, I believe you can do like an 11. You can bring her alive. What extraordinary faith. What I love in verse 19, what happens? So, Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Have you ever wondered about God's sovereignty and choosing who he would heal and who he wouldn't? Jesus was not, he did not come predominantly as a healer. He didn't go to the leper colonies. He didn't go to whatever hospitals they have and just kind of camp out and be a resident there. He was rather sovereign in his distribution of healing. And so what was his GPS? How did he figure out where to go? Faith is always the beacon that beckons Jesus to come. And when he sees faith active, he goes, all right, all right, um... That's where I'm going. Jesus wants to come to our point of need. And so he gets up from the dinner where he is the guest of honor, the special guest, and he goes where this man's great and extraordinary faith beckons him to go. So Jesus goes. He walks. And along the way, something happens. Look at verse 20 and 21. Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding from 12 years approached from behind and touched the tassel on his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be made well. 
There's a woman with a chronic issue, and the seriousness of her condition is highlighted by its duration. For 12 years, she's gone to every doctor that she can, she can go to. Uh, some say that this was some kind of a complication, perhaps with menstruation, perhaps um, something going on in midlife. There's something that's not right. But there is a loss of blood that is um, significant enough that she can't hide it. It might be a private issue and has public consequences. It's embarrassing. But even more than that, losing blood makes you weak physically, run down. According to the Old Testament law, it makes you unclean socially. And if you're unclean, you can't come to worship. So you're also a religious outcast. So the terrible thing about this debilitation that she is suffering is not that it destroys her life. It's not life-threatening, but it is life-destroying. It's life-threatening. She's not going to die from it. And so she's disgraced, and she sees Jesus making his way. And she comes up with an interception plan. She don't want to meet him face-to-face. She's embarrassed. <clears throat> she wants to make this a private affair. So she... Um, we all know this to kind of be a futile thing. She sneaks up on Jesus. I mean, even when Jesus was a kid, did he like win at hide and seek all the time? Sneaking up on Jesus. And she believes that if she can just touch the hem of his garment, kind of flapping in the wind behind him, that she'll be healed. Is this faith? Is this faith? Is it good faith? Yes! <clears throat> now, I think it's tinged with some degree of superstition. Is Jesus not going to know? Is Jesus not going to know? Why doesn't she want to ask him? Is Jesus not going to be willing? Does she have to touch? Is there any special garment in his, any special power in his garment? Like, what if she touched the wrong tassel? You know, left, not right. Oh, shoot, I didn't practice that. There's some superstition. Her faith is sweet but it's imperfect. From the other Gospels, we know that there's a great crowd around Jesus. And uh, this lady who's unnamed comes and she touches him. And what happens? This little affair that she kind of wanted to keep private is not private anymore. Jesus says to his disciples in Luke and Mark, who touched me? His disciples think he's gone mad. It's like, Lord, there's a crowd around you. There's all kinds of people. Everybody's touched you. No, someone touched me. And the point that he's making, <clears throat> the point that Jesus is making is there is a difference between thronging and touching. Everybody thronged him. There's one person who touched him. Just to be honest, at the state of the church in the United States, I ask myself the question, do we have churches full of people that throng Jesus? Or do we have people that have touched him? There's a difference. Both are touching. One is effective. And so while she'd hoped for anonymity, what does sweet, meek, and mild Jesus do? He calls her out. Who touched me? Can you imagine Oh my goodness. 
ter- this is not part of the bargain. This was supposed to be secret. And he calls her out. <clears throat> Verse 22. Jesus turned and saw her. He said, have courage, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was well from that moment. Why did he call her out? Because he needed to correct some of the things that were not right about her faith. That Jesus doesn't heal unwillingly. Jesus' healing power is always connected to his will to do so. And by calling her out publicly, he is reinstating her to public life. You're healed. You're better. You can go to temple. You don't have to hide from people anymore. You're reinstated to society. This whole story about the woman isn't even its own story. You remember what happened? Jesus was at the party. Jairus came up and said, my daughter's dead. Let's go. So this is an along-the-way story. This is a story within a story. It's not a separate healing. The healing is what Jesus is going to do for Jairus. But Jesus has the power that even in transit, on his commute to work, there's a woman who's been sick for 12 years, not a problem. I'm stocked up. I get everything I need to fix everyone that I need to wherever I might go. I'm not prepared for that. But Jesus is. So Jesus continues to Jairus' house. The woman's story is a brief kind of interlude within it. And so he gets to the house and he sees the professional whalers. No matter how poor you were, in Hebrew society, if you had a, a death in the family, you were expected to hire at least two flutists and a professional whaler. That, that's not someone who hunts whales. That is a mourner. There are some traditions, even in the United States. Um, our, our funerals that we do here are rather sedate affairs. Do you participate in some other funerals? And you'll leave wide-eyed. Because of the mourning and the weeping that happens there. And that's more kind of in line with what's happening. <clears throat> so Jesus gets there. And he sees the professional whalers and he dismisses them. He says, hey, were you guys paid in advance? Uh, yeah. Okay, you can go. I need you anymore. She's not dead. She's sleeping. Well, what kind of reaction do you think that elicits? <clears throat> Verse 23. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players in the crowd lamenting loudly. Levi said, because the girl isn't dead, but sleeping. I, I don't know if the parents got a refund. Um, but Jesus said, you're not necessary because she's not dead you see what the bible says they started laughing at the lord bro you're way out of your league now we didn't even know that that guy that was crippled wasn't faking it you know you paid him you know this to this that's not that big of a deal the blind, how, yeah, how do we know he was really blind? He's been blind since birth? Well, maybe it's been a conspiracy theory for like 30 years. <laughs> Jesus, my goodness, your success has gone to your head, and now you're going to make a fool out of yourself. I cannot wait to see the Jerusalem Times tomorrow. They laughed. And here's the thing that's interesting, is if Jesus was a showman, if Jesus was a, a ringmaster for a circus and he wanted to bright lights in big city, he would say, all right, punk, make my day. No, he'd say, come in the room. You don't believe? 
come in the room that his healing miracles are not for public consumption. They're private. On Facebook, it's a direct message, not a post. And what he does is when he, when he sees that there is no faith, he tells it to leave, and the only people invited into the room, according to the other Gospels, are her parents and a couple of his disciples. Faith gets to behold wonderful things, and unbelief is asked to go. So verse 25, they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, and he took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Did he have to do a dance? Was there some kind of chant that he did? Did he have to, you know, like an apothecary, mix something with a mortar and a pestle and apply it to her? Did he, you know, chest compressions? No. Grabbed her by the hand. Pulled her up. Restored her to life. When the Bible says she got up, the literal word is, she was raised. She was raised. She was resurrected. Not like Jesus, because she would die again. She was raised. Giving a clue that this man who healed her would die and be raised for the benefit of all who would put their faith in him. This most incredible and extraordinary faith that her father had, dead but, is rewarded with new life. Jesus last week demonstrated his authority over sin by forgiving it. And now he says, death is nothing but another thing. And I can make it flee. All throughout this, these stories, these collections of stories, Jesus responds immediately to the faith of Jairus. Jairus comes and says, my daughter's dead, but Jesus goes. The, the woman comes and she says, yeah, I'm sick, been sick for 12 years. He turns around, woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. There's faith, Jesus responds. And so we see that verse 26, when the crowd, uh, uh, I'm sorry, verse 26, in the news about what Jesus had done spread throughout the whole area. That town, that village, that zip code, they heard. Jairus' daughter, she's alive. Jesus did it. In verse 27, it says that Jesus went on from there. He was going out. And two blind men followed him. That's funny. Two blind men followed him. They each grabbed onto one of the tassels like the lady did. You know, it was really easy. I'm sorry. It's okay for scripture to have humor in it. Two blind men followed him. And they cried out, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David? Son of Joseph? Hmm. These blind men could see clearly who Jesus was, despite the physical sight that everyone else had. You are the Messiah. And this is the first time that phrase occurs in all of Matthew, and it's on the lips of blind men that can't even see his miracles. He says it. This is the word spread quickly, you think? Girl got raised up. Jesus is walking along. And in irony, Jesus gives physical sight to men who already see clear spiritually. 
They're already healed in one sense. They can see who Jesus is. Then he gives them the lesser gift. Now you can physically see. They may be physically blind, but they were spiritually perceptive. And here's the thing that's crazy. Where Jesus had always responded immediately to faith, faith, boom, faith, boom, faith, boom. These guys call out and Jesus flat out ignores them. Why'd they follow him? Because he didn't stop to talk to them. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Look at the next verse. So he, they follow him. Verse 28. When he entered the house, the blind men approached him. So wherever the blind men were, probably at the gate of the city, they followed Jesus to the house. And once Jesus got in the house, there's only one door. They cornered him. The blind men followed him. Got him in a house. Cornered him. And Jesus says to them, do you believe that I can do this? Listen, not easy for blind men to do. Follow Jesus and corner him. But they were undaunted because they knew who he was. So perhaps because of the excitement of the day and the spreading news about all the miracles, there was a particular reason Jesus wanted to do this miracle in-house. He wanted this to be a house call. He did it in-house because he did not want to help to bring to birth a false faith based upon miracles. And he knew the questions that he was going to ask and the interaction that he was going to have with these blind men about what they saw clearly. And he didn't want the crowds to witness their faith in him as the Messiah. Because his time had not yet come. There was still work to do. And so he brings them in and allows them to give full testimony to their faith in Christ. He asks them a question. Why? Is the question necessary? No. Do you believe? Jesus, we've been following you for half a mile. You better believe we believe. Yes, Lord. They even answer faithfully. Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and he said, let it be done to you according to your faith. If Jesus said that to you today, how many of you would have a good afternoon? What if your physical health was in direct proportion to your spiritual vitality? Jesus said, hey, I hope your day is according to your faith. I, for one, am grateful for his grace. So why does he ask the question? Why does anyone ask a question? Jesus isn't being a smart aleck. Every day when my parents come home, or when my parents, when my kids come home from school, what do we do as parents? Parents, you know the question you ask. What's the question you ask? How was your day? And what do you universally hear back from all of your children, no matter their age or gender? Fine. That is not an answer. Try again. How was your day? (laughs) Mom and Dad, why do we ask the question? Because we want to know what's going on in our kid's day. Why do we want to know? Because we want to have a relationship. Did Jesus need to walk and grab the girl by the hand to get her up? 
Did, did Jesus need to turn around and talk to the woman who'd been bloody for 12 years? No. Did Jesus need to... Jesus didn't even need to acknowledge the blind man. He could have walked by him and just gone, while he's walking. He didn't need for them to chase him, and he didn't need to get in the house, and he didn't need to ask them a question. But Jesus was interested in building a personal relationship. Where there's faith, he wants to encourage it. If you believe me, if you believe in me without knowing me, How much more will you believe in me once you know who I am? This is the God we worship. Who doesn't sit on some throne, and our life is not like some kind of fantasy football game for him. Well, I'm going to put put Drew Wilson in the game today. You know, Henry Grantham, I'm going to get him too. You know, Paul Paul Wettstein, I'll put him at tight end. It's not a game to him. The sovereign God of the universe wants to relate to the people that he has created. And so Jesus heals them. He says, let it be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and then Jesus warned them sternly. Be sure that no one finds out. And being the good disciples that they were, they went out and told everyone in that whole area what Jesus had done. If they believed his healing words, they should have listened to his warning words. This word for sternly warned only occurs five times, and it's a violent verb. Because Jesus is trying to avoid a false faith, an ill-conceived faith. And the thing that we learn here is just because you have an experience of grace does not mean you will be obedient. It should. If you obeyed perfectly this week, you can raise your hand. We'll clap for you. Call you a liar, but we'll clap for you. <clears throat> we'll have an invitation in a minute. You can come repent. Um, They didn't obey. The last picture that we see in this collection of Matthew's um, miracle stories. And in the last picture, we see Jesus restore speech to one man. And then everybody's talking about him. He restores speech to one man. And everyone talks about him. Look at verse 32. Again, in verse 31, they went out. They spread the news about him throughout that whole area. Verse 32. As they were going out again, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to Jesus. And when the demon had been driven out, the man spoke. And the crowds were amazed. And they said, nothing like this has been done ever in Israel. And the Pharisees said, he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. There's a whole lot of talking in those last three verses. It's another story of a demon-possessed man. And the temptation for us is to think that when we talk about all of this demon stuff, it's just a primitive way to talk about disease and insanity. If that's where you're at, please note that not every instance of Jesus' healing is a case of demonic possession. There are some natural causes that are just that. They're natural. But there are other that are due to demonic activity in which a distinct evil personality takes control of a man and removes some ability from them. That's what's happening here. This is not a man who just wasn't born with vocal cords. This was spiritual, demonic activity. This is, we don't have a lot of detail. Jesus cast the demon out. And how did we know the demon was gone? What's the Bible say? 
He spoke. Well, now, it's not just that man speaking. Now, the crowds are talking. I want you to notice something. When we talk about what's been happening here, uh, look at verse 26. Jesus raises up Jairus' daughter. Verse 26. And the news spread throughout that whole area. The blind men, verse 31. But they went out and they spread the news about him throughout that whole area. So that area, that area they know. And it's almost kind of anticlimactic. Because now all Jesus is doing is healing a demon-possessed man who couldn't speak. Raising Jairus' daughter was the big one. But once Jesus heals this demon-possessed man, what does the crowd say? Nothing like this has ever been done in the entire nation of Israel. This is not Charlotte News. This is CNN. This is Fox News. This is a national news story. This is not CN2. The, 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 the mute man is talking. The crowds are talking, and the religious leaders not you know paying attention to what's on Twitter and you know what's kind of the, the what's happening, paying up with the, cur- the current trends. They needed to talk too. So they heard the man, they heard the crowds, and they couldn't deny the miracle. So what do they do? They ascribe it to the only other source that they could, since they couldn't deny that the miraculous was taking place. So what do they do? This man casts out demons. How? he is one it's a terrible thing isn't isn't there a danger of erring in the opposite direction when you don't know all the facts they refused to believe that jesus was god so they refused to believe that the miracles were done by god's hand and so they have to ascribe the work of god to the demonic be very careful when you don't know all the facts because it's not that you're neutral you typically swing to the opposite extreme so friends, for us, here's the question. When, Matthew, when we consider all that Matthew has grouped together in these healing miracle stories, you see both the breadth and the depth of what Jesus does. He heals lepers, outcasts that nobody's supposed to touch, and Jesus heals them. His love and his ministry is broad. But when it comes to people's problems, how deep does the problem have to be before Jesus can't help them? 12 years? Every doctor you've been to? Oh, 12 years, I can't do that. Death? Dead butt. When we consider Jesus' power and authority, his breath, its breath extends to every person. And its depth extends even to the extent of lifelong illness and even death. Paul says, what can separate us from the love of God in Jesus? How high does the wall have to be before Jesus can't jump over it? How wide does the moat need to be before Jesus can't cross it? And he says, there's nothing. There's nothing he can't do. And so as we consider this incredible picture that Matthew paints of Jesus, his authority over sickness and death, his authority over nature and the supernatural, we ask ourselves this question. At the end of this collection of stories, everyone's talking. Like the crowd, are we, merely, are we merely talking about him? Like the Pharisees, are we talking against him? Or are we, as great commissioned Christians, speaking for him? Telling of his marvelous deeds and calling upon all men and women to repent 
that they might know his power and his freedom. In light of these wonderful works that Jesus does, why would we not consider it a privilege and the highest of callings to tell of the things that he has done? Not just for people in the past, but for us. Listen, the Bible says, your heart rebels against God. So when a man or a woman comes to Christ, that is no less a miracle than him raising the dead. Why would we not share the story we have to tell? Let's pray up and pray. God, we have life in your name. And you call us to steward the things that you have given to us for your glory. So Lord, convict us of where we have been embarrassed to brag on you. You give us everything. But as we see, we, we must know our need before you are effective for us. And so God, I pray that by your spirit, you will humble us. You will break us. You will point out the things that we have held on to in our own power and that you help us to let them go, to lay them down, to give them to you that your power might come in and cleanse and raise us up to walk in newness of life. Lord Jesus, I pray.